कालकाये विद्माहे स्मशानवासिन्ये दीमहि तन्नो घोरे प्रचोदया ओम तन्नो घोरे प्रचोदयात्रा ओम जयंती मंगला काली भद्र काली कपालिनी दुर्गाक्षमा शिवाधात्री स्वाहा स्वधानमुस्तुते ओम शांति 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 हरि Om victory unto Kali, the goddess, the power of all mantras, victory unto her who dwells in the cremation ground. May she illumine my mind. Om peace, peace, peace. There is a very important spiritual practice, perhaps the most important spiritual practice of them all. It's called Sadhu Sangha. You know, and, and in tantric traditions especially, we make a big deal of this transmission a transmission of power that happens in most cases wordlessly, but often in some cases through a word. So there's, as we say, Sparsha Diksha, Vag Diksha, Chakshu Diksha. These are all types of initiation where through a glance, through a touch, through a word, spiritual power can be awakened in someone um, through coming into contact with one in whom that power is already awakened. So this is Diksha. But aside from Diksha, this effect is still true and, and powerful. Like, it's a, a spiritual contagion, if you will. Swami Prabhavanandaji in the 30s, in the Vedanta temple, used to say, spirituality is not caught. Sorry, it's not taught, it's caught. And, and so that's, besides even Diksha, like just regularly spending time in the company of those who are illumined, we take something from that, we gain. And, and thereby, we come to understand what a life of intoxication in God really looks like. And that deepens our appetite for spirituality. It gives us a sense of faith. It gives us... Um, a feeling of like the possibilities that are available in this life. But Sadhu Sangha isn't just, and this is the first point I'll make, going out and meeting people in real life. That's obviously like one of the best forms of Sadhu Sangha to be in the presence of someone like in real life. It's also spending time with the great masters all throughout history by reading their works. So the beauty of spiritual life is that these masters have a lot of them, not all of them, actually comparatively very few of them, when you really think about how many great souls have come and gone without anybody taking notice, comparatively few of them have left behind, by God's grace, writing. Some of them have left, left nine complete works volumes. You know, like Swami Vivekananda left nine volumes of complete works. So much, you know? And we were just discussing Sister Nivedita then expands upon Swami Vivekananda's complete works by offering her own multiple volume set. Um, and before that, Shravakrishna, his words and his actions and his being was so dutifully recorded by one particular M who we have to thank and we're so, to, to whom we're so indebted for producing this like immeasurably valuable spiritual treasure that is called the gospel of Shravakrishna. Because unlike the Gita, where we get teachings from Sri Krishna, what we get in the gospel is that plus like the narration of what life was like to be there in Dakshineshwar with the God-man of Dakshineshwar, what his intoxication looked like. Not just the internal signs that Krishna gives Arjuna in chapter 2 of the Gita, but the external signs too. Like what does it look like? Um, internal state aside for a person to be in that state. And we get that with the gospel of Sri Krishna. So these things are so valuable. Uh, St. John of the Cross, he left behind this wonderful text called The Dark Night of the Soul. And there's even like the complete works of St. John of the Cross, beautiful. Or St. Teresa of Avila, 
These are all mystics who have left behind, in some cases, a little bit of writing, in many cases, a huge corpus of writing, and that is also necessarily sadhu sangha. If we read that stuff, it's like we're communing with them. When you read Swamiji, you feel the power of Swamiji flowing forth from the book. And that's like being with him. You know, when you read the Gospel of Shravakrishna, you really feel like you're in the room with all of those people. There's Rakal, later to be Swami Brahmanandaji, rolling about on the floor in ecstasy, and Shravakrishna is touching his heart saying, peace, peace, be calm. Or there is... Um, I don't know, Girish arguing with the master or something like that. There is um, Naren who's maybe singing a song and playing on a tanpura or haughtily debating someone in the room. And, and you feel like you too are there, an interlocutor, maybe an eavesdropper. But not even that. You feel like you're just part of the Sangha, hanging out with Sri Ramakrishna. And when he speaks, you feel like you're in the room with him, hearing what he says. Like that's the beauty of that text. You know? Bhagavad Gita, you feel like you're on the battlefield. You feel like you're Arjuna facing a difficult challenge in your life, not really sure what to do next, stunned and paralyzed by the weight of your predicament, and then Shri Krishna comes, and he speaks to you as if from within the Guru uh, pours forth wisdom, and, and every word just resonates, you're like, this is the truth. But even then, the mind is not satisfied, it has questions, but lucky for you, Arjuna, on your behalf, asks all of them. <laughs> so, these texts, when you read them, the Bhagavad Gita, when you spend time with Swami Vivekananda, the complete works, in the Gospel of Shri Krishna, when you read, Rumi or, or, or anything like that. That also is Sadhu Sangha. So today, friends, we're, we're gathered to do a little bit of Sadhu Sangha, but with a very, very special person, with perhaps one of the greatest mystics and saints of Mother Kali, at least that we know about, none other than Ram Prasad Sen, Sri Sri Ram Prasad Sen, who, as you know, was Sri Krishna's perhaps, I want to say, like, biggest literary influence or poetic influence or musical influence but I think it goes far beyond that I think he was actually a very real spiritual influence for Sri Ramakrishna so Ram Prasad Sen existed in the 18th century mid 18th century and he passed away in 1803 very early in the 19th century so he was about 30 years before Sri Ramakrishna who would be born in 1836 now one thing to note is that all throughout the gospel of Sri Ramakrishna we find the master in various ecstatic moods brought about by contemplating various different deities and he, of course, was, a, was, was fond of all different kinds of music. He would love to sing Krishna songs. He loved especially songs pertaining to the attitude of the gopis of Vrindavan and how they pine for their Sri Krishna, that kind of vyakulata, which Narada describes as like the highest form of devotion. Just this vyakulata, meaning intense anguish or a feeling of dis-ease or restlessness and being separated from God. You know, having tasted the joy and sweetness and thrill of God, the whole world becomes tasteless. And when we become parted from that beauty and that bliss and that presence of the divine, we feel this restlessness, this vyakulata. So the gopis are perhaps the paragons of vyakulata, the vyakulata um, bhaktis par excellence, because they're always pining for Krishna, always crying for him. And as Tulsidas says, even one tear shed in that viraha, that anguish, is sweeter than all the joys in the world. So they're in this very exalted state of anguish. And so Sri Krishna, he particularly liked songs regarding gopis and their pining for Krishna. He also liked songs about Chaitanya and his God-intoxicated state. He, was, he felt much affinity, I think, for Chaitanya. Chaitanya is regularly regarded as an avatar. He's widely understood as an incarnation of both Krishna and Radha. And the, some of the Vaishnava literature around that is that Krishna, he was in some sense kind of 
jealous maybe of the way Radha loved him and he was not himself able to feel what that love was like. So moved by, you know, Radha's love, he decides to incarnate as Chaitanya, who is a combination of Krishna and Radha. So he can feel what it's like to commune with himself as Krishna Radha. Of course, a very tantric idea, Prakasha, Vimasha, what have you. So he, make no mistake, Sri Ramakrishna loved those songs too. He loved songs about Chaitanya. Look, the two brothers are coming, Gaur and Itai. Uh, look how he dances like a mad elephant. Like he loved all of these songs. He would sing to Shiva. He would sing to, um, particularly to Krishna as a gopi. He would sing uh, songs about Chaitanya, to Chaitanya, in reverence of Chaitanya. He would sing taking the mood of Chaitanya. So he loved all these songs. But I think above all, I think he loved Ram Prasad songs the most. He, in fact, I think in most of his sadhana was just singing to Ma. He would just sit in front of Ma Kali and just sing to her. And importantly, Ram Prasad, he himself was a mystic to Mother Kali and his main mode of devotion was this earnestness, this sincerity and this longing. He was a tantrika par excellence. So our conversation today will take us into the heart of what tantric practice looks like because Ram Prasad, above all, was a great sadhaka. He was perhaps a sadhaka first. He was a spiritual aspirant first, a devotee of God first. And his poems, his music rather, was his sadhana. It was not what he was doing to like be famous or as an artistic expression. No, it was a genuine heartfelt expression of his spiritual longing. So those poems, those songs are not just like any old songs. They're charged, imbued with the power of Ram, Ram Prasad Bhava while he was singing them, while he was composing them. So that Bhava, I think Sharabhagrishna felt the most affinity for. Of all the different poets and saints, of all the different songs and, and poems that were available to him, I think it was Ram Prasad and it was Ram Prasad's music that was especially important for Sharabhagrishna Paramahamsadev. So to understand Sharabhagrishna, we should go to Ram Prasad. And to understand Ram Prasad, we have the gospel of Sharabhagrishna. The two of them are mutually illumining. And to understand Ram Prasad, I think, is to understand what real devotion looks like what intoxication in God looks like, what reckless absorption and reckless devotion looks like. It's also to understand a kind of bhakti that is maybe unique to tantra. Tantra and like maybe a Shaiva, Shakta sense. There's a type of bhakti. You find it also in the Vaishnava Church, of course. But it's a type of bhakti where it's not like a whining bhakti. It's not like, oh, I'm nothing. I'm such a loser. God is everything. Please take pity on me. This worthless worm of a human being groveling out on the floor, eking out my existence as this like bound soul in some side. It's not that. This is the kind of bhakti which Ramakrishna sometimes would call tamasika bhakti, where you enforce your demands on God. You say, wait, Ma, I'm going to sue you in court and then you'll see just what kind of mother-son I am. Or Ma, I'm going to devour you completely. After all, like mother, like son. This attitude of like enforcing your demands on God, being strong as a bhakta saying, I, I really love God. And I know that I can attain Mother Kali's feet by force if I need to. I'll break into the house at night and steal those feet from Shiva, who is coveting them upon her, his chest. You know, this idea. Or like to be able to complain to Mother. Mother, you are as heartless as the stone image that represents you. What kind of a mother are you to leave your son here panting and, and coughing and crying out for you with no response? So that, that attitude of complaining to God, being angry at God, fighting against God. That's also there in this kind of tamasika bhakti. But above all, it's, it's Ramakrishna's bhava of like enforcing your demands on God as you would your very own mother because that implies a kind of intimacy, you see? Like when we think God is this grand, awe-inspiring thing, then we take this attitude of this bhakta that's like groveling and like whimpering and simpering, like notice me, senpai. Why? Because we think God is so great, right? And if God is so great, we're so pitiful. 
But look at what Ram Prasad is doing. He's demonstrating a kind of intimacy with God. So intimate that he's able to complain and talk smack against God and, and scream and, and beat his chest and, and growl at God almost. But that's coming from a place of real love. So the story that we're going to hear today takes us into a particular flavor of bhakti that I think is quite unique and quite worth hearing about. It's a very inspiring story. And Sri Ramakrishna himself, I think, had that attitude and he really resonated with that particular bhava of earnestness, intensity, but also a kind of like enforcing your demands on God vibe. In one scene, Sri Ramakrishna says about some Sikh devotees that said to him, God is compassionate. And he goes, well, why would you say that? Why would you say God is compassionate? The Sikhs say, oh, you know, because he looks after our needs and he, he gives us virtue and righteousness. And Sri Ramakrishna says, is it a strange thing that he should do all of these things? Is it, is it weird for a mother to like raise up her child? And to give the child allowance and to give the child food, is that weird? Is that something that we say is compassionate? It's not. The mother is not compassionate. It's her nature. Her nature is to love the child. There's no compassion here. Because compassion implies actually a degree of distance. It's not compassion. It's not sympathy. It's not pity. It's not compassion. It's just the natural tendency of the mother to want to do right by her child. So the child, in return, can expect that kind of care from his mother. So then, right after telling that story about, you know, conversing with the Sikhs about God being compassionate, Sri Ramakrishna then goes on to say, you know, God is your very own mother. Imagine you want to get something from your mother. You say, can I have a little, I don't know, allowance or something? And the mother says, no, no, no. Your father says no. But please, mother. No, no, no. I'm busy right now. I'm talking to my friends. Leave me alone. But mother, please, please, you must give it to me. I'm your child. I will die if you don't give it to me. I refuse to eat. I refuse to sleep. I refuse to like lie down. I refuse to drink until you give it to me. And then what's the mother going to do? Huh? Whether or not you deserve that allowance, the mother's heart cannot resist the, the, the real plea, the sincere plea of the, of the child. So she opens her purse and flicks the wrist and here you go, my child. Now be off with you. Similarly, mother gives everything. She gives liberation like that. It's a trifle to her, as my guru once said. She just gives liberation so easily. She gives devotion. She gives all the four fruits of life, as Ram Prasad sings. But you have to ask in that way. So today we're going to hear a story about what it looks like to ask in that way to be so absolutely absorbed in God. That's one thing. This earnestness, this vyakulata, is something that Sri Ramakrishna really, really appreciated and it was a centerpiece of his sadhana. And because Ram Prasad represent that, represented that to its utmost, I think Sri Ramakrishna felt that natural affinity. Secondly, of course, Sri Ramakrishna is a Kali Bhakta. So he mustn't forget that his main love in the, for the most part, although he eventually realized that God is one reality expressing itself in all these different ways, and although his hallmark kind of trademark feature is that he's, he's a Sufi as well as a Christian mystic, as well as a Vedantist, as well as a Tantrika, as well as a dualist or qualified non-dualist, he, he's too capacious to cram into any one school or any one dogma. That's his kind of calling card, his trademark. But it's also kind of especially important to note that he achieved this, this realization, this direct perception of the unity and harmony of all religions through Kali Bhakti, through Kali Sadhana or Tantric Sadhana. Um, and Ma, Ma Kali was his Ishta. So he had that relationship with Ma Kali of son to mother, what is called Parivatsalya Bhava, inverse Vatsalya Bhava, which means I am the child, she is my mother. That attitude of I am the child of the divine. That was Ram Prasad's attitude too. So he related to the mother in that particular way. So I think that's another reason why they go together. They had that same tamasika bhakti, you could say at times. They had this vyakulata, this earnestness. And they also had uh, together the same bhava for the same ishta. They both were the children of the divine mother. So that's another affinity between Ramakrishna and Ramprasad. And the third, I think the most important affinity is that they were both ecstatic devotees. 
You know, it's, it's a kind of class, I think, or a kind of um, brand of devotion. There are some devotees who are very quiet and very private and very personal and very still. So they're the type of devotee that's maybe more Shiva. I don't want to say it that way because they're inseparable. So I don't want to imply any kind of bifurcation that isn't there. But maybe the emphasis is maybe on the like quietistic silence space aspect. But there are also some bhaktas who are charged with the energy of that consciousness and they can't help but dance. They can't help but sing. They're, Swami Vivekananda, I think, is the paragon of this. He, there was not a moment where I think he wasn't working in something. Even when he was sitting still, he would be absorbed in meditation. The moment he would come out, what prodigious action came from him, right? Like lecture after lecture after lecture, seven lectures a week, sometimes more, eight lectures a week. Um, what a worker he was. So he was like that. That was, the, that was a kind of ecstasy. The ecstasy, the madness of the Divine Mother caused him to be such a great servant for the Divine Mother. With Sri Ramakrishna though, his madness expressed itself more like clapping, singing, crying, dancing, and above all, singing. I already mentioned it, but it should be mentioned twice. He, was a, he loved to sing. Sri Ramakrishna, and you know, in the beginning of the gospel, we find M, he meekly comes back into the room and he's like, will there be any more singing tonight? Because he was so charmed by Sri Ramakrishna singing. And, and they say, no one sings like Sri Ramakrishna and Swami Vivekananda. You know, and what I learned as a young boy when I was with my grandfather in temples and stuff, it was not the vocal talent that was actually appreciated in these circles. It was the sincerity of the song. It's not just like memorizing songs and parroting them and like impressing people in the temple or in spiritual spaces. It was about really meaning it. You know, when you sang, it doesn't matter if you have a cracked voice or like terrible, you couldn't keep a tune to save your life. That I, I would, when I was young, listen to these old women and old men sing in like this like broken voice that you could barely make out the melody whatsoever. And yet that music moved you in a way that even the most like accomplished virtuoso singer might not be able to. And there's something about the place from which that music came that touched that same place in you. So this isn't about singing well. When we talk about singing, when we talk about music here, we're not talking about it in its performative dimension, where it's being used as an avenue for like leisure, which is wonderful, right? Like as, as a way to like um, enjoy yourself or hear new sounds or experience a new sensual delight. That's good. That's all well and good. But these singers weren't interested in that. These singers had no choice but to express themselves in song. Music, like the blues, was all they had to be able to work with this like intensity in them. So they sang mostly to God, not for others. So as you're going to hear in the story today, Ramprasad would just all day long, he would stand in the Ganga neck deep and just like sing. Not to anybody in particular, he was just singing to Ma. And because he would sing in a loud voice and a melodious and beautiful and resonant voice, obviously made beautiful through much sadhana. And of course, above all, through his sincerity, people would come and he would attract kings. And so you're going to hear the story of how if you give your mind to God, your, all your financial worries will be taken care of. That's part of the story too. That's another interesting feature of the story. Um, yeah, so everything is here. Like everything you need to know about spiritual life will be in this story. So that's the story I want to tell. So this is my preamble. Shravakrishna and Ram Prasad are uncannily similar. They're mirror images of one another, I would argue. Um, and so as we talk about Ram Prasad, especially people who are devoted Ram Krishna, like, you're really going to dig this. It's going to be so cool. So let's do this. Let's talk a little bit about Ram Prasad. Let's, uh, like, like M says at the beginning of the gospel, come, oh mine, let us go to Dakshadeshwar and let us go and visit Sri Ram Krishna. Every time you open the gospel, it's like you're going there, you know? Let us immerse our mind in he who is all bliss and all, uh, all joy, all peace, like that. Similarly, let us now together go to a particular village 
north of Calcutta, about 35 miles north of Calcutta, called Kamarhati, which means the village of potters or potter's village, which is the scene and setting for today's story. So I'm going to tell you a story now about one of the greatest saints of Kali who ever lived. This is a historical fact. His life has been recorded, but most of what we know of his life comes from his songs, the autobiographical sketches that we get from his songs, and also, of course, from his some, some historical sources. So I just want you to know that most of today's material, I'm going to be drawing from this particular book, which is one of my favorite books of all time. I actually take it with me everywhere. I can't tell you how many times I've read this book. It's like one of the most special little books that I have in my life. And it gives, it's given me so much joy and so much nourishment, especially in times of like dark nights of the soul like that. This book really is like my pole star. It's called Ram Prasad, The Melodious Mystic by Swami Buddhananda. It's written so beautifully. And what I like about it is in it, there are these pictures. <laughs> so you can see, you know, you can see like scenes of Ram Prasad's life. And, um, you know, the, the pictures really bring the book to life. Like, for instance, here he is in the river singing to Mahakali, attracting the attention of Maharaj Krishna Chandra, who would be to him what I think Keshav was to Sri Krishna, like a supporter, a patron of sorts, and above all, a spiritual friend. So we're going to we're gonna encounter all of these scenes. Unfortunately, I won't really be able to show you the pictures. Maybe I can, but I, I, I would probably just recommend the book just so that, you know, for copyright issues and stuff. It's just nice to like go out and get the book and um, it's a wonderful, this book itself, although very beautifully and simply written, it actually draws from a previous book called Sadak Ram Prasad. And that is by Swami Vama Devananda. It was published in the 80s, I believe, by the Udbadan office in Calcutta. Actually, no, maybe a little earlier. This book was published in the 80s. So this book came out in the 80s and it's pulling from a previous book on Ram Prasad's life, Sadak, Sadak Ram Prasad from Udbadan office Calcutta by Swami Vama Devanandaji. So these two books give us what we know, I think, today about Ram Prasad. Of course, many scholars are talking about him. There's a nice translation out about Ram Prasad's poems called Grace and Mercy in Her Wild Hair. I don't have it anymore because every time I get a copy, I end up keep giving, I keep giving it away. <laughs> but if you read the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, there you'll find a lot of Ram Prasad poetry. Like the gospel is full of Ram Prasad poetry because Sri Ramakrishna was so fond of singing it, not just during the course of his sadhana, like he would sing it obsessively and incessantly in the temple in front of Kali. All night he would just be singing Ram Prasad songs over and over and over. But also during the course of his life as a guru, he would directly quote from such songs. Like he would say to people, dive deep, oh mind. You know, say, nothing comes in spiritual life unless you dive deep. Well, that's from the Ram Prasad song. You know, he when he says things, like a lot of the times he's quoting Ram Prasad. And so when we learn about Ram Prasad, we, we really start to understand how much of an influence this saint had on Sri Ramakrishna's life, sadhana, and teaching. You know, So I'm going to now tell you the story of Ram Prasad Sen. It's a fascinating story with many twists and turns. And at the end of this class, like in a few moments, when we get to the end of the, the hour, I'll close off by just reading you some of Ram Prasad's poems from this little book. And they're actually all the Nikhilanandaji translations from the Gospel of Sri Krishna. So they'll be very familiar to a lot of you. You like remember them, you know, because you might, having read the Gospel, have encountered them. So let's just start from the beginning with this village of Kamarhati. So let me like set the, the scene. It's a small village outside of Kolkata, 35 miles north of Kolkata, much like Kamarpukur, probably. Now, Kamarhati at that time uh, was known for its scholarship and its culture. It was like such, um, an intellectually rich place that many people thought it rivaled and maybe even surpassed Navadwip. Navadwip is where Chaitanya was from. Chaitanya was a great scholar 
from Nadia, from Navadwip. And that place next to Benares was like the intellectual center of India. All the famous logicians come from Navadwip or Benares, and they typically debate. So Benares scholars would come to Navadwip and they would have a fight. Or Navadwip scholars would go to Benares and they would have a fight. Now in India, before the Mughal invasion, there was never any religious conflict. Why not? Because they had this like debate culture. You know, where people would debate one another. And you know what happened? If you lost a debate to someone, you would have to become their disciple. So there's one famous scene. Shankara is debating Mandana Mishra. The judge of that debate is Mandana Mishra's wife, who is seen as Lakshmi herself. So this is this is a big deal. She gives Shankara the win. But this is a big deal because by doing so, what's happened is Mandana Mishra now has to become a monk and become a disciple of Shankara. So can you imagine the level of like truth, truthfulness that must have been there? You know, so and if Mandana Mishra won, Shankara would have to get married, become a householder. And we wouldn't have any of the Shankara Dashnami. So, like literally, the fate of India's Hindu monastics depended upon this one debate, which maybe for better or for worse, depending on where you stand on this issue, Shankara won. <laughs> um, but anyway, so these debates were a big deal. They were a serious thing. And it was not just about the pride of your city and your town, but it was about like spiritual life, like what the pundits in your town were telling people to do, that might be radically altered if they get bested in a debate with some other scholars. So it's a big deal. So when the scholars come to your town and they're about to have a debate with you, like the whole town is getting kind of excited, like, oh my God, it's going to happen. So the story begins with how Kamar Hati got its name in the first place. It used to be called Halisahar or something else like that. And then these scholars from Nawadwip came there to debate the scholars of Halisahar. But then when they got there, they came up with this ploy, this ruse. A potter disguised himself as a maidservant and brought a small boy, which was her son, to go and serve the pundits in the, like, I guess, Airbnb that they were staying in at the time. Now, in the like, this is a ploy, of course. The maidservant is like doing her duties. And then one morning, as she's consensuously going about her duties, the son says, Mother, mother, wh why do the crows call? Why are the crows calling? And the mother annoyingly says, my child, don't ask me about that kind of thing. I, what do I know? I'm just a maidservant. How would I, how would I know about the crows? Go and ask the pandits from Navadwip. They must know. They're wise men. So the boy goes. And you know, the thing is, you could be a great logician, but I guarantee you, a young boy's question will stump you because mm -hmm. there's nothing in your logic books for that. So the young boy says, why does the co co crow call? Pandits were like, I don't know. How do we know about that? And so the boy in the sight of and the earshot of the pundits runs back to his mother and says, mother, mother, I demand. Why do the crows crawl? And this, I think, is a teaching also. So you see how the child is acting anyway. So then the mother says to the child, she just rattles off some Sanskrit verse. There's like a beautiful like timira, I forget exactly, shank shubdha, I forget exactly the phrase. It's like, vaham, vaham, kakaha, vaham, kakaha, vaham, kakaha. So there's a Sanskrit couplet. It's a kind of like, famous couplet where it's like the crows cry out we are crows we are crows so that the sun won't destroy them mistaking them to be part of the darkness of night what a beautiful sentiment right when the maidservant rattled this sanskrit verse off the top of a dome the pundits were like did she just and they started thinking if even the maidservants so she goes, how did you learn this? And says, oh, I've been living amongst pundits. I live in this town. There are a lot of pundits here. I've been li listening to them speak Sanskrit. So I just picked up a few things here and there. And the, 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 the scholars are like, oh my God, if even the maidservants in this town know Sanskrit, 
then we, we're certainly going to lose this debate. Let's get out of here. So they all run away, thereby saving the town from maybe an embarrassing defeat at the hands of these Nawadwip scholars. So this gives it the name, Kamarhati. The town is named after this potter and this potter's clever ruse. So potter Kumar or Kamar Kumar. Hati means village, so the village of the potter. That's how it gets its name. Now, this is the set and setting. Very culturally rich place, very like refined, sophisticated sort of culture. In this town was born a particular man named Ram Ram Sen, and he married a woman named Sideshwari. And together they had a few children, one of them being none other than Ram Prasad. So he was born into a Vaidya family, that is a doctor's family. His father, Ram Ram Sen, was a pretty prolific and, and, and accomplished Ayurvedic physician, um, as well as a great tantric scholar, as well as a great tantrika. It's kind of fitting that his wife's name is Sideshwari, which is a name for Kali. And I think his sister's name are all like, like Kali names who like, like his Rambasa's daughter I know is Jagadish, uh, Jagadishwari, Parameshwari. I think his sisters are like Bhavani. Like there are all these Ma Kali names. And clearly Ram Ram Sen was a Tantrika and he was naming his daughters all these like, you know, um, Kali names. So he, Ram Prasad, he's born into already a very culturally rich household where like Sanskrit is, 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 is emphasized and valued. Father is an Ayurvedic physician, accomplished, but also a great sadhaka who's exposed to spiritual ideas and, and what have you. And he, from a very young age, was sent to school to learn both Vyakarana and Kavya, that is Sanskrit grammar and Sanskrit poetics. So he was very well tutored in Sanskrit and as well as the six darshanas, the, the six types of Indian philosophy. He was a very intellectually gifted person. Now, when it came time for him to get a job, now this is very common, he doesn't want to do what all Indian boys are expected to do, go to med school. In other words, he doesn't want to do his like, Family profession. He doesn't want to be a vaidya. He doesn't want to be a doctor. I mean, like, how relatable is this? Like, in the in the mid-18th century, there is a father who expects his son to succeed him as a doctor and thereby make a stable income for the family. And then there's this, like, dreamy poet boy who, like, would rather make a living doing something else and not that. So, fortunately, his parents were quite understanding and, and they asked him what he wanted to do. And he said he wanted to learn languages. So, apparently... Of course, he would speak Bengali. Most all his all of his songs are composed in Bengali, but I think I think all. Um, but he also learned Hindi and Persian, which I think is really interesting because that might have given him access to like maybe Sufi stuff, and learning Hindi might have given him access to like Mirabai and maybe some other stuff. Uh, who knows? But he learned these other languages, much like Swami Vivekananda when he was young. His father was also like this, very interested in Persian culture, and uh, so he was very worldly in the not worldly in the spiritually deficient sense, but worldly in the sense of like he knew about all these different cultures. So you can see that he was already a very intellectually gifted, intellectually developed person. Now, around age eighteen, he started showing like a kind of dispassion for things. He became very dreamy, and you know, naturally, he was already growing up around all these spiritual ideas. He became more and more interested in them. So his father was more than happy to support this. His father, of course, had him initiated by their family guru, and he very devoutly started practicing his family guru's sadhana. And, and so he became more and more absorbed in sadhana. His father couldn't protest because his father himself was a spiritual and religious man. Like he saw that and he was like, fine. But he was very worried. Like what would happen to the family if he were to die? If the father, the sole breadwinner were to die, what would happen to the family? Ram is not going to be a doctor. What's going to happen? And lo and behold, the father did very shortly after that thought die, leaving the family in very dire straits, which is uncanny similarity with Swami Vivekananda. The same thing happened. His father died. And next thing you know, a very wealthy aristocratic family who were like so generous and supporting a lot of people were plunged into the utmost poverty. 
Swamiji was reduced to a beggar in like a day. And he had to take care of his sisters, his mother, his brother, all alone, you know. His father had died. And in Swamiji's case, it was even worse because when his father died, all the people that were previously being benefited by his father's generosity now came back to like sue the the family and take land and like try to finagle more and, and so Swamiji spent a lot of time in courtrooms actually when he was that age because he was fighting for his family's like land and property and, and money and against all these people who betrayed him so obviously Swamiji had it really bad but bless you with Ram Prasad it was pretty acute I mean poverty is pretty acute in those days like if you didn't have any income like how would you feed this whole family the task fell on Ram Prasad's shoulders and he's freaking out because now he's torn between two worlds. As Swami Buddhanandaji said so beautifully, imagine the plight of this young boy who's torn between two worlds, one exacting and the other elusive, right? Worldly life with its financial demands, exacting, tiring, right? You have to go to work and all day long, you're like doing this job and you come home and you're exhausted and there's taxes and there are these bills and then there's all these things. Worldly life, exacting. Spiritual life, elusive. Like all these things are so intangible, yet so real, yet so far away. Don't seem as real as my taxes or as my work. Yet in some sense, it's realer. It's like we're torn between these two worlds. So we can all of us, I think, sympathize with where Ram Prasad was in this particular period of his life, where it wasn't just him. He'd take care of his sisters, his, 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 his mother, who would all like perish um, because they weren't making it. That back then, you as a man had to like make it. Ram Prasad now has to get, get a job. One thing I, I neglected to mention is that after he was initiated by his um, family guru, he practiced that sadhana for a while, but actually later he, he met his real guru, which was Agama Vagisha. So Agama Vagisha, he was like a great tantric master at that time. And he was actually very well known and much sought after. But by chance, Ram Prasad encounters him in the forest all by himself. And when he sees Ram Prasad, Agama Vagisha sees the great spiritual future ahead of Ram Prasad, sees his spiritual potential and initiates him at once into Kali Mantra, into Kali Sadhana, gives him all the tantric, esoteric sadhanas. And Ram Prasad is plunging into these, right? But all of this must come to a stop because now he has to go and make a living. So he goes to Calcutta. He goes to the big city, you know, and he, he tries to make a living by becoming a clerk. So he's actually knocking on doors. Sri Ramakrishna says, if you, if you want God, you should pursue God the way an um, uh, unemployed person goes from door to door looking for a job. Every day he's rejected. He'll come back the next day and say, how about now? Like that, you should pray to God, knock on the door. You know, Christ said, knock and it shall be opened unto ye. Maybe you have to knock a little harder, a little longer, a little more repeatedly. <laughs> Say the mantra once, you're like, it's not working. <laughs> so so he, this is, it's not a metaphor. Now he's really knocking the door, looking for a job. And he gets a job, you know, with one Durga Charan Mitra. There's a Durga Charan Mitra who hires him as a clerk, as an accountant. So now Ram Prasad has to do account. So here he is. Here's a great, this soon-to-be great mystic of Kali. He's it's, it's got an office job right now. It reminds me of Goethe. Goethe used to be a lawyer in an office before he became Goethe, the great poet. Or Einstein used to work in, I think, a copyright office or something like that. But anyway, so it's kind of interesting, these humble beginnings. So I'm going to read to you now a scene from, from that whole thing. Oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you that he got married in this time. So at age 22, his father insisted that he get married just to kind of ground him a little bit. Swami Buddha Nandaji calls it the wonder drug. Parents always believe that like, if you just get your child married, then it's okay. They'll, they'll, God will go away. <laughs> so he got married to one Sharvani. Um, who is a very important figure in this story, much like Ma Sharada is a very important figure in Sri Ramakrishna's life. Ma, Ma Sharvani, she's also very important. 
we'll come to her in a bit. So he marries Sharvani and he has four children. Um, two of them are daughters, Jagadishwari and Parameshwari. So Sami Buddharandaji humorously puts it, he wasn't insensitive to the attractions of his wife. You know, so this wasn't someone who like Shri Ramakrishna was a celibate from beginning. Like he participated in worldly life. He was a householder. He had children, you know. But I like the way he says it. I'll read you this phrase from Swami Buddhanandaji. It's quite a beautiful phrase. He says, Though Ramprasad was married and was not insensitive to the attractions of his wife, a greater attraction, not always definite and defined, and agony, painful yet sweet for the divine, had such a tremendous sway over his mind and aspirations that he could never discipline himself to these responsibilities which normally devolve on a householder. Rather, he devoted himself more and more to the practice of spiritual discipline. These are the disciplines that he got from his initial guru. When that guru passed away, then he met Agama Vagisha, who leveled up his sadhana, if you will. But notice, his, his passion in the beginning was not necessarily poetry, it was sadhana. Do you see? Although he was interested in learning various languages and all that, and he showed an aptitude for language, what he loved, it seemed like, was spiritual life. He had this yearning, this like spiritual longing. So then he meets Agama Vagisha, he gets initiated, um, and Rampasad is absorbed in sadhana. And then, this is funny, when his, I'll read you this poem that he writes, when his father dies, here he is, in poverty, he writes this poem, Mother, strange is the beauty of one who becomes your devotee. He does not even get a piece of cloth to adorn his loins. His body is smeared with ash and he carries matted locks on his head. He's, he's begrudging his poverty. Now, what Swami Buddhanandaji says right after that is, contrary to common notions, the Divine Mother's grace comes to us in the form not only of plenty, but destitution too. It is not until one has learned to regard destitution and misery also as manifestations of Mother's grace that one has begun to love Mother. And then unfortunately, I got in trouble for it earlier, but this is the poem, Swamiji poem, he quoted, who dares misery love and hug the form death. I won't say it. But um, notice, He's realizing now mother's grace is this poverty, is this destitution. But then he gets a job. Okay, he gets a job at Durga Charan Mitra's house as like a clerk. And then you know what he does instead? He'll be sitting there at his desk, I suppose, or like wherever it is he's doing the accounts. And he'll just suddenly become absorbed in the Divine Mother. And suddenly, once he starts dwelling upon her, he just feels this spontaneous outpouring of poetic expression. And he starts scribbling into the account book Poems to Makali, because he would just forget what he was doing. He would become absent-minded, distracted, abstracted, and he would just start scribbling these poems, right? And this meant he was starting to make a lot of mistakes in his ledgers, in his account books. The checks were not, the, 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 the books were not balanced because he wasn't actually doing any math. He was just like <laughs> writing poems to mother. So other officers who were like in charge of like that, you know, project, they started noticing this. They became really angry and they went to Durgacharan Mitra. Interestingly though, and this is very interesting, Durgacharan Mitra historically was very indulgent. For whatever reason, he didn't want to punish Ram Prasad. He didn't really like take it seriously when these people were complaining about Ram Prasad. That might be mother's protection, you know. But then what happened was he just couldn't take it anymore. These complainants kept doing this like saying, so finally out of sheer annoyance, he calls Ram Prasad in. And the complainant, you know, gleefully hands Durgacharan Mitra, the boss, the ledger book and says, aha, look, he's caught red-handed. Instead of doing his accounts, look what he's doing instead. He's writing these poems. And these were the poems, the kinds of poems that he was writing. Oh, mother, give me your treasure ship. 
I am not ungrateful, O Shankari. I cannot stand all and sundry looting the treasure of your feet. Forgetful Tripuri is your steward. Shiva is pleased with a trifle and is generous by nature. Yet you keep your treasure under his charge. Half his body is leased out. But what a heavenly salary for Shiva. I am your servant without pay. My only right is to the dust of your feet. If you adopt your father's way, then I stand defeated. If, however, you adopt my father's way, then I may attain you. Says Prasad, I am undone with the trouble of such a post. But if I can get at those feet of yours, I can easily get over my difficulties. You see how intimate and personal his prayer is? He's struggling. He doesn't like his job. He hates his job. He's got a financial problem. But what he really wants is the treasury of his mother's feet. And so he's saying, if I can get that, then I'll be over my difficulties. So he gets caught. Durgacharan Mitra reads the poems that are scribbled into the ledger and starts crying. He's so moved by this, you know? Um, especially when he comes to the lines, I am your servant without pay. I have only the right to the dust of your feet. Tears roll down his eyes. Of course, as Swami Buddhanandaji points out, to the great bewilderment of the complainants. <laughs> and then he says this, Ram Prasad, so Durga Charamitra, to the shock, horror, and surprise of the complainants, said, Ram Prasad, you have not been born in this world just to eke out a humdrum existence. You wanted the treasureship of the mother. You will get it in the fullness of time. For the time being, return home and devote yourself to spiritual practices. Do not be sorry, thinking that you have spoiled my account book. On the other hand, by the writing of your hollowed hand, you have sanctified the account book, which will be kept in my family as a precious heirloom in order to give account of your devotion to the Divine Mother. Go home now. You will get an allowance of 30 rupees every month from my family. Oh my God. Now 30 rupees was his salary. It was his monthly salary for doing the clerk's job. He got fired, but he got to keep his salary so that he could go home and write poems. Can you imagine? I think this is the guarantee we get in the Bhagavad Gita. Verse 22 from chapter 9. Let me read it to you now. It's a wonderful verse. Um... And I should have this memorized. It's so good. Ananya shitayanto mame jana paryupasate desham nitya biyuktanam yoga shemam baham yaham. Or Ananya shintayanto mame jana paryupasate desham nitya biyuktanam yoga shemam baham yaham. Those who are always absorbed in me, ananyaha. Uh, chinta, chinta means to think of. So those who are always thinking of me, mom. Yay. So those who are always thinking of me, those persons who are always thinking of me and who are always worshipping me, who are always absorbed, nitya, nitya eternally, abhiyuktanam, always joined to me or absorbed in me. Those people who are always absorbed in me, that person, I will, I will carry the word vahami, means I will literally carry to that person whatever they need and what they have, I will preserve. Isn't that beautiful? So this verse 9, verse 22 of book 9, Krishna is saying expressly to Arjuna, if you just give me your whole mind, if in each and every moment you worship me with single pointed devotion, if you think of me constantly, if you become absorbed in me, then to such a person, I will give you, I will literally on my back bring to you what you need and what you have, I will maintain. You will never be wanting for anything ever again. And that's Krishna's promise. It's a powerful promise. And here you can see it fulfilled, right? Ram Prasad, 
he gets 30 rup- uh, rupees a month just to go home and write poetry. Why? Because he's attained that state. So Sri Ramakrishna will give this example of like, if a child is like old enough to take care of itself, then he's expected to. But if a child is so like young and guileless and helpless, then the mother will take care of him. He, she must. He can't take care of himself either. So you become like that. You become like a baby, like a fool for Christ, if you will, like for God. Then when you when you really are in that state, like honestly and sincerely, then all your financial wants will be solved, right? Never before. We can, we can pretend and we're like, where money, where's my salary? But if, if you want that salary, then obviously you're not at that state yet. But if you really are, you really don't care about money. If it really matters little to you, whether you end up under the bridge or not, because you're so absorbed in God, you probably won't have to. You know, that's one of the beautiful things. Okay, so that happened, which is really good. Now, this gives Ram Prasad the space to really plunge into sadhana. Like, he goes hard. He goes home. And what Agama Vagisha taught him, Agama Vagisha was like his like Sadguru. But before that, even what his Guru taught him, now he just goes and he throws himself into sadhana. But at this time, his sadhana, actually what it looked like was taking a bath in the Ganga, doing his ritual ablutions, his morning kind of prayers. But then he would stand in the river neck deep and just all day long, sometimes, sing songs to Ma. His sadhana, it seemed like, much like Sri Ramakrishna, was exclusively at this point singing songs. It, it's not clear whether that was exclusively what he did, but it seemed like the main thing that he was interested in, singing songs to Ma. And apparently, he wouldn't sit down and write these songs as a normal poet would. Yes, he has one work, Vidya Sundar, which he actually sat down and properly composed. But for most of these songs, he just kind of like spontaneously rattled them off as he felt the, the, the inspiration within him. So they would say like his songs would mingle with the murmuring of the river and be like carried off downstream. And he would sing loudly. He would proclaim his love for Ma loudly, but in this state of like total inwardness, like he was so aloof, so absorbed that he was wholly unconscious of his surroundings. Now, at this time, there was a very famous Maharaja named Krishna Chandra. And this Krishna Chandra, although himself a very talented man, he was like a Libra type of guy because he liked to collect. Wherever he saw a great like talent, a dancer, a poet, a mystic, he would invite to his court. And so in his court was none other than Agama Vagisha himself, Ram Prasad's guru, the great tantric master of his time. Then there was also Gopal Bhan, who was the best court jester at that time. And there were other famous poets. There's a great king, Vikram Aditya, who we spoke about in that Vikram Vetala lecture. He had the Navaratnas, the nine jewels. And one of them was Kali Dasa, perhaps one of the greatest uh, Indian playwrights of all time, like the Indian Shakespeare, Kali Dasa. He grace the court of King, king Vikram Aditya. So back then, if you were a king, a Maharaja, what you would want is a cool court, like a cool posse, like just collect all of it. Once he went, that, that particular Maharaja, Krishna Chandra, he was coming down on a boat, sailing in the Ganga, when he heard this mystic Ram Prasad singing songs to Kali. And he stayed there for a long time, just like listening to Ram Prasad, you know, just like obsessed with this man. He's like, oh, I have to acquire this rare gem of a poet. This mystic, my court will be like, unlike anything, if I can have him as one of my courtiers. So reverently and humbly, this Maharaja approaches Ram Prasad, who is like naked in the river, sitting in the Gali, and he says, please come to my court. Now, let me read you this scene. It's thrilling, Ram Prasad's response. And I love the way Swami Buddha Nandaji writes about it. So Krishna Chandra is the Maharaja of Navadweep. So humbly and great. Okay, so... Um, like a jeweler, irresistibly attracted to a rare jewel, Krishna Chandra respectfully approached Ram Prasad and suggested that he too might come and adorn his court. 
What was the reaction of Ram Prasad at this windfall, which would solve the material problems of his life forever? Was Ram Prasad beside himself with joy at the sudden stroke of good luck? No. He felt as though he was struck by a thunderbolt. How could one in whose heart the mother of the universe was enthroned think of becoming a courtier? Right? Like, why would he want to think about anything else? <gasps> Why would, he, why would he think of anything? Uh, so humbly and gracefully, Ram Prasad declined the offer of the Maharaja, who in turn grew all the more respectful at the blazing renunciation of the young aspirant. I mean, what a baller thing to do. A Maharaja who is used to being like flattered and like used to people like fawning over him. He approaches a mystic and the mystic goes, no, 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 I decline your offer because I don't want to be a courtier. As much money as that will give me, uh, that's not what I care about. I care about mother and I don't want to be distracted. So he was so moved by this. Now, Swami Buddhanandaji, what he does is he points out a similar instance in the life of Sri Ramakrishna. There was a particular devotee, Lakshmi Narayan Marwari, who made a gift of 10,000 rupees. An insane sum. That's like someone, I don't know, Venmoing me like $5 million or something. It's like crazy. <laughs> You're set for life, right? You know what happened to Sri Ramakrishna? It says here, he gave him an endowment of 10,000 rupees for personal expenses. Sri Ramakrishna fell unconscious as if struck on the head. And then Swami Buddhananda, he rejected it. He like outright rejected it. And Swami Buddhananda, you know what he says? Strange men, these, who were mad with love of the Divine Mother. The values of the world were no values to them. <laughs> what a great story, right? This like blazing renunciation. Um, but anyway... It's very beautiful. What ends up happening is Krishna Chandra is so moved by this that he gives him, I think, like a hundred, uh, I forget exactly. Dikhas means what? I don't exactly know how big that measure is. I don't think it's an acre, but it's like he gives him a hundred dikhas of land, a lot of land. So he gives Ram Prasad this land and says, it's yours. It's the hereditary right of your family now. Yeah. And, and now Swami Buddhanandaji quotes this verse 22 of, of chapter 9 in the Bhagavad Gita. Persons who worship me without any other thought, to them thus absorbed, I carry what they lack and preserve what they already have. And then he goes on to say, if the validity of this promise requires proof, here it is. Mm -hmm. You know, Ram Prasad had given his heart and soul to the mother. Was it not then the mother's duty to look after the child to not seek any other support in this world? Oh. Now, another scene. So there is a particular um, uh, Nawab. Nawab means like Muslim ruler. Um, and his name is Siraju Daula. Siraju Daula. So this Nawab was in Murshidabad and he invited Ram Prasad to Murshidabad because he was also inspired by Ram Prasad. And it's kind of interesting. A Muslim ruler was inspired by Ram Prasad's devotion enough to invite him to go to Nawab, uh, sorry, uh, Murshidabad and like sing there. That's the beauty of Ram Prasad's poetry is that it transcended like cultural and religious barriers. Like there were Muslim kings who were obsessed with him also, interestingly. Anyway, um, now I want to read you this poem. This is a very, very important poem. Perhaps like maybe the centerpiece of Sri Ramakrishna's instruction. Remember, he has all that he needs now. He has land. He has 30 rupees a month. He's like set. Like So he, he can afford to like really do some sadhana. So now he writes, he sings this song. Taking the name of Kali. Dive down deep, O oh mind, 
into the heart's fathomless depths, where many a precious gem lies hid. But never believe the bed of the ocean bare of gems, if in the first few dives you fail. With firm resolve and self-control, dive deep and make your way to Mother Kali's realm. Down in the ocean depths of heavenly wisdom lie the wondrous pearls of peace, O mind, and you yourself can gather them if you have but pure love and follow the scripture's rule. Within those ocean's depths as well, six alligators lurk, lust, anger, and the rest, swimming about in search of prey. Smear yourself with the turmeric of discrimination, Viveka. The very smell of it will shield you from their jaws. Upon the ocean bed lie strewn, unnumbered pearls and precious gems. Plunge in, says Ramprasad, and gather up handfuls there. Oh, what a poem. And of course, he's talking about our experience as sadhakas. We sit and we meditate, saying, plunge deep, go deep, don't float on the surface, go deep. But if you go deep, you're going to encounter all kinds of things. All of these subconscious complexes that are buried deep there, they are the alligators. They're so evocative, this scene of like Makara, who is a sea monster that swims in the Swadishtana chakra. These like kind of a, a base animalistic desires like the reptilian brain like that. They're like crocodiles cruising, you know? cruising at the bed of the but don't worry if you go in there with viveka and we're talking about this also right you need this discernment like some kind of contemplative ability if you go in with that turmeric apparently it keeps away crocodiles you'll be safe and then you can gather the gems and what are the gems spiritual treasures which is joy it's like being on molly all the time it's like the joy of like being in love all the time it's like the joy of um being in the moment all the time these things which are actually what people want money for they want money for these gems that unfortunately can only be got by plunging deep and not hovering on the surface. So here we can make a point that many of us live horizontal lives. You know, this is an idea I got from Shiva Nandaji, Saraswati. So we, a lot of us, we, we do a lot of things. We don't feel deeply. You know, we don't really like, we don't really live. We just do a bunch of stuff and then we die. And all of it will be like a passing picture. You know, so temporary, so impermanent. At the end, on our deathbed, we'll really think about our life and maybe most of us come to the conclusion that like, wow, it was just a flash in the pan existence. You know, it's like, have you had those days where you do a lot of things and you come home and you're like, I feel like nothing happened. Although you did a lot of things. And then you have those days where you do nothing and you feel like your whole life has changed. So that's depth. And so what he's saying here is go deep, have depth. Don't be a horizontal being, be a vertical being. Let your life be a deep, poetic and meaningful life. Not just the life of like creature comforts and, you know, societal values, etc. So obviously this is Ram Prasad's mood now. Um, he's being taken care of by the mother. So he plunges in. So what he does now is he, he makes a pancha munda where you collect the five skulls. So we'll get a little insight into Ram Prasad's sadhana. He did what is called Veera sadhana. Veera sadhana. So you should know that in Tantra, there are three types of sadhana generally. There is the Pashu sadhana the Pashubhava, which is where you have a predominance of tamas. And if you're a very tamasic person, there's a particular sadhana for you. Um, I won't really go into it because neither Ramakrishna nor Ramprasad did that type of sadhana. So I think I'll just leave that one alone, maybe in the Q&A. But then Ramprasad's particular bhava was called the Veera sadhana, which is my bhava too, which I like. Ramakrishna's sadhana was called the Divya bhava. So these are two bhavas in Tantra and they're both valid and different. So the Divya Bhava that Sri Ramakrishna performed, very sattvic. That's when you have a preponderance of sattva guna. But for those who have a preponderance of rajoguna um, with a lot of like energy and dynamic activity, 
the Veera Sadhana is enjoying. So what is the Veera Sadhana? It's a few different things. In Ramprasad's case, at least three things we know. One is he collected the five skulls, Panchamundi, which Ramakrishna, I think, also in his own time performed in Bhairavi Brahmani. So these are the five skulls. They are rabbit, snake, um, frog, fox, and man, human. So you collect these five skulls and you put it in the ground and you sit on top of it and meditate. This is not a prescription, by the way. All of these things should be done with the proper supervision of a guru. Don't just go out and like buy some skulls and especially not the human skull. Be careful. You might find one on the internet, but you don't know what will come with it. So be careful with this kind of thing, right? Um, and also you can find like animal skulls are of course way more ethical and a little easier to obtain. Like animals die and people take the skull and then they, they have these like kind of morbid shops like goth shops i don't know if you've seen them but it's like taxidermy shops where there's like a subculture apparently in america where people like all these skulls so i think it's easy to obtain some of these but back then you would have to like go out and like look for the the, the carcass of a snake and collect these things so he collected them and they have a certain energy to them and of course all the vira vira tantrikas in the room are going to get excited because this will this will fit your bhava so he puts the he puts all of these things what's that he, he puts them into the ground and then he sits and he does his sadhana on top of this. It's called Pancha Mundi Asana or Pancha Munda Asana. I mean the five skull seat. That we know he did that. So he would go to the Panchavati. Now, what is the Panchavati? It's five trees. It's the Vilva tree. It's the Amalaka tree. It's the um, Ashwata tree. Wait, let me see. Let me just check. Yeah, okay. So it's Vilva, Ashwata, uh, Amalaki, Asoka, and Vata trees. So these are the five trees that a tantrika will gather and plant so that they can do sadhana in the middle of that. So Shravakrishna had a Panchavati. He would say, have you seen my Panchavati? When people visit Dakshineshwar, he would often say, have you seen my Panchavati? It's like, hey, MTV Cribs, here's where the magic happens, you know? So uh, Shravakrishna is very fond of his Panchavati. He had it built and he did most of his sadhana there. So too with Ramprasad. He went and planted all these trees, or at least he found one. I don't know if he planted them, but he went and in this Panchavati, he put that asana, that Panchamundi asana. He sat on it and presumably he did two things. Japa, the predominant tantric practice is repeating mantra, which Ramakrishna would do all night. He would just sit there and just do his mantra all night while reverently attending to the divine within. And secondly, he would do puja. So Swami Buddhanandaji reports towards the end of the book, it's image worship. That's predominantly what we do. We we invoke the, the entity into an image. The deity is, is, is visualized. You can see over here. And this image, it comes to life for the bhakta. And the bhakta will offer it various flowers, fruits, sweets, like that, incense, fire. So most of Tantra is this puja. And puja can take all day, actually. Swami Bhajananda Saraswati at the Kali Mandir was telling me of certain pujaris that all day long will be the puja. And because you, if you know puja, if you go in and you like hear where they are in the puja, you'll be like, I'm going to be here a long time. Because they really take, they get absorbed. They really take their time. And they, it happens to Maharaj all the time. You know, um, Swami Sarvadevanaji, um, people complain that his pujas are long because he really, when it comes to Ganesh, he really worships Ganesh. He gets so absorbed in Ganesh. Then when it comes to Shiva, he really worships Shiva. Truly, he is Sarvadeva Ananda. Uh, Ananda, the joy and bliss through all the gods. Sarvadeva Ananda. Um, so he, he gets so absorbed in Puja. So much so that in Durga Puja, he started 30 minutes early. You know, I got there at 11, which is when the Puja was supposed to start. And suddenly I saw him worshipping Shiva. I was like, wait, what? You, you finished Bhuta Shuddhi? You... And, and then I learned later that he had started the worship at 10.30 early just so that he wouldn't keep everyone waiting because he really gets absorbed. And those of you who come to Kali Puja, watch. 
he will just get absorbed like that. So this is this is kind of worship. Puja is very central to our, to our tradition. And it's actually very internal. A lot of puja is like Kundalini Shakti, Chakras, Matrika, Nyasa, like that. It's a, a, You know, you've all been studying it together in our Thursday night class. So puja and japa, he was doing that. Another thing we know he did is he probably did that um, Shava sadhana where he sat on a corpse. And I'll show you the picture. There's one picture here of him making his um, Panchamundi asana. You can see he's got the skulls and he's putting the skulls inside the ground here. See, his Panchamundi asana. That's a picture of him making that. And then there's a picture of him seated atop the um, atop a corpse. Look at that. This is a crazy photo. Look at him. He's doing his sadhana on a corpse, as is indeed suggested by some of the tantras. Okay, so that's another thing. He would do. He would sit on the panchamundi, or he would sit on a shava, an actual corpse. I like this picture a lot because you can see there's a jackal there. Do you see the cute little jackal, it's like just hanging out, like his like pet jackal, one of Mother Kali's chacha. Yes, <laughs> so he would do that. One last thing is in Vira Sadhana, we offer Mother five things, which is not offered in Divya Sadhana or in um, Pashu Sadhana. They are they're called the pancha makaras. They are madhya wine, mamsa meat. Matsya, fish. Mudra, which is an ambiguous term. Some scholars say it's a particular kind of parched grain or rice that's actually aphrodisiacal or like it kind of induces rajas. Or I think it just means mudra, like particular beautiful hand gestures. And finally, maituna, which is sex, like, like actual sex. These five things are offered to the Divine Mother. Hmm? Isn't that interesting? Why? Because in, in, a, in, in a, a, a person with a lot of rajas, like these things should not be seen as like sinful or bad. Rather, they should be spiritualized and ultimately transcended, right? So ultimately, all the Veera Sadhakas will get to the same place as the Divya Sadhakas, as the Pashu Sadhakas. They take their individual parts, each of them suited to their own individual temperaments, and they, they all get to the same place. And that same place is total freedom, total identity with the non-dual Brahman, total ecstatic absorption in bhakti like that um, through any one of these parts. So it's a dangerous path, you have to walk it carefully because you can easily get sucked into sensual attachments and like be caught in Maya, except now it's worse because you have a spiritual excuse. <laughs> so it's maybe even worse than just being regularly caught, you know, but at least um, it offers people a chance to gradually and without much violence, make progress in spiritual life without shame narratives, guilt narratives, sin narratives. So these types of Veera Tantrikas are a bit more eccentric. They practice in cremation grounds. They like, like all that stuff. Ram Prasad was, I think, that par excellence. Which I think is a contrast with Ramakrishna. He was a Divya Sadhaka, whereas this Ram Prasad was more of a Veera Sadhaka. He was a householder. That's one thing typically associated with Veera Sadhakas. He had a wife and he had children. Um, so obviously, like he was participating in that endeavor. Um, and he um, offered wine, he offered meat, he offered all these kinds of things. Okay, so that was his sadhana. He was doing Kali Sadhana, but he was so intense about his Kali Sadhana that after a while of doing intense sadhana, he was rewarded. But let's not think that this came to easily. Actually, there was a great period of anguish in which he was neither in this world nor in that. So let's read Swami Buddha Randaji's wonderful depiction of this. So Ram Prasad, he's in the Panchavati, you know, he goes, oh mother, shall I remain like this? Buddha Randaji calls this agonizing supplication. I shall not call you mother anymore. You have given and are giving me no end of troubles. He's complaining. Mother, how long will you make me go about like a bull with blinkers on, round and round the oil press? Tell me, mother, where do I stand? I have none here to call my own, O Shankari. You see this despair 
of like, I can't call my own my own. I've renounced them. And at the same time, you're not mine yet. What am I? I'm just hovering between these two worlds. Ordinary mortals, Buddha Nandaji says, cannot imagine the suffering of a sadhaka who has given up this world of din and dross, of dust and lust, but has not gained the other world of light and joy, of knowledge and bliss. He is at times in agony, in choking darkness. You know, so he did, much like Ramakrishna, pass through a period of intense spiritual struggle. So don't think just because you've left worldly life behind, your troubles have ended. In fact, they perhaps are only just beginning. Because while worldly life is painful, imagine how much more painful this netherworld is of being in between. It's like a no man's land. If you survive it, you will enjoy the peace and blessedness on the other side. And if you end up in it, there's only one way out to get through. But during the period, it's a dark night of the soul. And Ram Prasad had certainly many of those. How many did Sri Ramakrishna have? Oh my God. He almost killed himself, right? He was, he was having so much agony, so much uh, despair that he literally took the sword in the Kali temple with an end to uh, ending his life, with a view to ending his life. And right as he was about to cut his literal throat, he had a vision of the Divine Mother. You know, that really teaches us something. Do we deserve God? Like really? I mean, if, if the game of Mother Kali is to be in this world and she's made it such that only such people seem to attain God, then we have to ask ourselves like, oh my God, like that, that much I need something, you know? And if you talk to people who make a lot of money, they'll say the same. If you want to be really rich in this world, you have to really want to. You know, you have to want it more than anything else in this world. You have to be willing to sacrifice anything and everything for wealth. If you're like that, you'll get wealth. If you're willing to throw your family under the bus for wealth, you'll be wealthy. Swamiji once said, right, in this world, you have to have a heart of stone, sweetness in the lips, but poison in the heart if you want to succeed. Like that's worldly life. But if it's true for worldly life, like the fact that you have to be single pointed about, like we're talking Olympic level attainment here, you know, I think it's easier to win a gold medal in the Olympics. So make no mistake, it's really difficult. But interestingly enough, a sadhaka has no choice. You're pushed in that direction. And this is a kind of intensity that I think many sadhakas would say is as horrible and as difficult as it is, it's actually better than a surface level life. This is back to that point. You can live a horizontal life, which is smooth and easy, or you can live a life of depth, but depth isn't always bliss. Depth could also be despair, like tortured genius kind of thing, which is what Ram Prasad is going through. So make no mistake, he's going through all of that, but then out of this acute moment of agony, burst forth one day the Divine Mother endowing all his sadhana with meaning and value. So now comes the next phase in Ram Prasad's life. His tumultuous worldly life, his tumultuous sadhana, now he gains the fruit. He sees the mother in many cases. In one case, he's mending a fence. And on the other side of the fence is his daughter, Jagadishwari. And Jagadishwari is feeding him this twine. And he's tying the fence. Now, as it so happens, Jagadishwari is called away from her, her job. She goes away. But the twine keeps getting fed to Ram Prasad. So Ram Prasad finishes the thing and he says, thank you, Jagadishwari, you did a really good job. She goes, huh? I didn't feed you the twine. I had been gone for a long time. And Ram Prasad realizes, oh my God, it was the Divine Mother herself. That was one of his visions. And so he sings this song, you know, a beautiful song. He says, um, oh mind, why do you keep away from the mother's feet? Oh mind, meditate on the mother. You will then get mukti, liberation. Tie then the mother's feet with the cord of devotion. So bad is your luck that though having eyes, you did not see that the mother came to you as your daughter and tied the head with the devotee. There's many meanings. The legend is that mother came. But maybe he just saw his daughter as mother. You know, like you were blind. You didn't see that mother came as your daughter and tied the head with the devotee. I like the second interpretation. The first interpretation is like, no, the daughter left. Jagadishwari went away. 
and mysteriously the twine was fed. It was mystical, right? But I think more likely, he just is ruining the fact that he wasn't able to see that. And he realized later that the goddess is his daughter, is everyone. But at that time, how bad is your luck that though you had eyes, you weren't able to see that daughter was mother and that she had come to make the fence with the devotees. That's so beautiful. Now, the second story is perhaps my favorite. He's on his way to take a bath in the Ganga. There are two versions of the story that I've heard. The one that Swami Buddhanandaji reports is an exceptionally beautiful woman, an exquisitely beautiful woman appears and asks him to sing a song. He says, oh, you're Ramprasad? I've heard you sing great songs to the Divine Mother. Please sing me a song. And Ramprasad says, um, not right now. I'm going for my bath. I have to do my prayers. I have my worship. And then later, if you're still here, I'll come back and sing you a song. So in the first version of the story, he goes and takes his bath and he comes back and he doesn't find her anywhere. And then he finds inscribed upon a temple wall the following statement. The statement is, I am Annapurna. Came to hear your songs. Cannot wait any longer now. Go to Kashi and sing before me. And he was like, Annapurna, the goddess herself, came to hear songs and he didn't sing to her. So he freaked out at that very moment. He didn't like, he didn't make plans or anything. He just, at that very moment, he just like went to Triveni. I mean, so he went, he went to Kashi on his way to Banaras. It's a kind of walk, you know, from, it'll take months. So from, he, he didn't, just didn't question it. Like he started walking to Banaras from Kamarhati. And as he was going, he suddenly had a dream that he wouldn't have to go all the way. If he got to Triveni, Apparently in Triveni, the mother was content to be worshipped. So because of the power of his dream. And one thing you'll realize about these sadhakas, dreams really matter to them. Right? Rani Rasmani built the Dakshineshwar temple on a dream. And she was willing to sacrifice so much money and really the, the, the kind of risk she took on the behalf of a dream is like inhuman. So these people really value dreams. So he had this dream where mother told him, no, I'll be satisfied if you just sing to me here in Triveni. You don't have to go all the way to Kashi. And allegedly, that's where a fountain of songs emerged that was like a productivity he had never experienced before. Song after song after song seemed to emerge from his heart spontaneously, you know. My other story that I like very much, the other version of this is that he... He scoffs the woman off because he want, he's thinking of the Divine Mother. He goes, so he's unable to see women as the embodiment of the Mother, as the Chandi said. He goes, takes his bath, he prays the Mother and he gets no response. And then suddenly he has a vision and the Mother says, why should I come to you now? I asked you for songs earlier, you shooed me away. You know, if you want, if you want my favor again, come visit me in Kashi. So I like that story. So I like the, the idea of like the Mother being peaked and there's this like little, anyway. <laughs> so, um, these, these things are happening in his life. He's having these spiritual vision. And naturally, at this time, it's not just that he's enjoyed the patronage of, of great kings like Maharaja Krishna Chandra or Siraj, uh, Siraju Daula, the Nawab of Murshidabad. That's making him famous. But above all, he's now becoming increasingly popular because they can see it on his face. Once you see God, if you have Samadhi in the slightest, or if you see the vision of God like Ram Prasad did, he was having regular visions. You know, Shri Krishna, when he would go and pluck flowers, Ma would come with him. And she would come and like play with him as a little girl. Once you see the vision of God like that, she becomes a living part of your life. Um, something is different about you. Your face glows and people see it. In you. They immediately recognize that person. I don't know what it is, but they're not quite the same. And there's something lovely and alluring and attractive. So he became like that. And he became a personality. And his songs were becoming very well known. and 
he used to sit in this like Panchavatiyas we've mentioned and he would just sing songs, right? And this Maharaja who was used to his palace and his luxury would come to that Panchavatiya and like sit there and just like listen to him. And so there's a very special friendship the two of them had. The Maharaja who was a lover of art and above all, Ram Prasad. And Ram Prasad who was a lover of Kali. The two of them had this relationship that to me is very analogous to like Keshav and Sri Ramakrishna. So Sri Ramakrishna, he said, oh, when Keshav was sick, he was so upset, he offered green coconut and sugar to the Divine Mother. He said, uh, Mother, if Keshav dies, who will I talk to when I go to Kolkata? He had no spiritual friend. It's a very rare thing. Like What we have to have spiritual friends is very rare. Um, it's very special, actually, because to be cared for on that level and to talk to someone on that level is something we don't usually get. Um, so he really valued this one friend that he had, Krishna Chandra, this Maharaja he loved. And so too with Ramakrishna, he loved Keshav so much, as worldly as he was. And Keshav was like that time, you know, what a celebrity, dining with the queen, giving lectures, leader of big organization, you know. But when he was with Ramakrishna, the two of them would just hang out in this tiny little room in the corner of Dakshineshwar, laughing. And what would happen is Keshav would fall to his face and take Sri Ramakrishna, the dust of Sri Ramakrishna's feet. And then when he got up, Ramakrishna would fall to his face and take the dust of Keshav's feet. They just love each other so much. There's another character you should know about. And Ramakrishna actually quotes him in the Gospels. I think it's worth mentioning. His name is Aju Gonsai. I'm going to show you a picture of him. It's, it's like a caricature. He's like a clown. He's like a little bit like a Hazura character almost. And he's maybe the foil. He's like a kind of foil to Ram Prasad. So Aju Gonsai, he was like this Vaishnava who himself was somewhat of a poet. He had poetic ability. And he used to like coming to this Panchavati because he was trying to impress the Maharaja. He was very excited because he would go there and what would happen is Ram Prasad would sing a song and then Aju Gonsai would reply spontaneously with doggerel verses, parodying Ram Prasad's sentiment kind of debating Ram Prasad, parodying him and challenging him. And these used to delight, delight the king. The king was like delighted by this. And every time the king showed any pleasure at one of Aju Gonsai's songs, he would get even more excited and have more fervor. You know, so like, I'll just give you an example from Buddha Nandaji's book, um, like of this exchange. You know, what happens is uh, Ram Prasad, one day out of sheer disgust at Aju Gonsai's behavior, Ram Prasad remarked that the effect of karma the oiliness of a piece of wood soaked in oil and the tendency to madness do not leave one even after death. The reference to, the reference to madness was a hit to Aju Gonsai. He was also accused of being, in Swami Buddha Nandaji's words, crack-brained. Buddha said, people knew him to be a crack-brained fellow. That was Buddha Nandaji's words. So like, apparently he had this reputation of being like a little insane. Ram Prasad made fun of that. He said, madness doesn't go even after karma. You know what Aju Gonsai's response is? Stunning. He goes, pat came the retort from Aju Gonsai. One cannot get rid of the tie of karma, the habit of study, and the intoxication of wine, even with death. Intoxication of wine was aimed at Ram Prasad, who for his sadhana would now and then take wine as required in tantric disciplines. <laughs> Isn't that really beautiful? Like they had this like back and forth. And Aju Gonsai, it was no joke. He was a man of spiritual insight too. So. Let me show you now some of these retorts that Ram, one of them Ram, Ramakrishna actually points out. So I think it's worth mentioning. So Ram Prasad will say, taking the name of Kali, dive deep down, O mine, into the heart's fathomless depths where many a precious gem lies hid. Okay. In response, Aju Gonsai says, dive not, O mine, very often, for your breath will get choked in no time. You, a phlegmatic type, should not do excessive diving. If you contact fever, mind, you will have to go to the abode of death. Too much greed brings one to grief. Why labor in vain? Oh, mind, dive not, 
just go floating and catch the boat of the feet of Shyama. <laughs> it's not bad, right? Like there's something. Okay, and then Ram Prasad sang, but they're very dangerous poems. Ram Prasad sang, "Come, let us go for a walk, oh mine, to Kali, the wish fulfilling tree." Oh, Ram Prasad, how how much Ramakrishna loved this song by Ram Prasad, the Kalpataru, Kali, the wish fulfilling tree. Come, let us go for a walk, oh mine, to Kali, the wish fulfilling tree, and there beneath it gather the four fruits of life. Okay, Adrigon says, retort. Why, oh mine, should you go for a walk? Don't you be induced by anyone to go anywhere. Maybe going to the wish fulfilling tree, you will pick a wrong fruit in place of the right one. So like this, they would have this kind of back. It's kind of sweet, right? That like Ram Prasad would say these poems and Adjagon Sai would retort. But there's one retort that's quite famous because Ramakrishna actually liked it. Most of these are parodies. Obviously, we're on Ram Prasad's side here. He's a genuine, true sadhaka. This guy is just like a psychophant, flatterer, but not without some philosophical insight, some poetic ability, some spiritual insight. Now here, Ram Prasad says, the world is a mere framework of illusion, right? Ram Prasad is in a state of like renunciation. He's seeing the world as a dream, like very Vedantic. Achukonsai flashed, this very world is a mansion of mirth. Here I can eat, here drink, and make merry. Whoa, Ramakrishna sees that. He, he would quote it. He would say, once Ram Prasad sang, the world is a mere framework of illusion. But that's not my attitude. I agree with Ajugonsai. This world is a majarkutti, a framework of illusion. And here I can eat, drink, sleep, and make merry. Shravakshan would say this to all I do is eat, drink, sleep, make merry. This important thing that like one of Ajugonsai's sentiments, at least, is of tremendous spiritual value. He corrected Ram Prasad. The world is the mother's manifestation. Why call it a framework of illusion? So that's a very important thing to note also. Okay, so we have all of this. We have all of these ideas. Um, one, two, two final things I have to say. His death, I definitely want to say about his death. But before that, I want to spend a little, just, just a moment um, contemplating Sharvani, Ram Prasad's consort. So a, a tantric sadhaka, especially of the Vira type, is very rarely without a consort. Like in Abhinava Gupta's case, it was Shambhu Nata, but it was also Bhagavati. And both of them were Abhinava Gupta's guru. Unfortunately, though, we don't know much about Ram Prasad because all we know about him is through his music, through his songs. But much less is known about Sharvani, which is a great tragedy. What kind of woman must she have been? And one thing is we get one insight into her character. Ram Prasad was a pretty hopeless householder, you know, because he wasn't really able to do his duties as a householder because he was always absorbed in sadhana. He would spend all day in the Panchavati, not making any money. He was very much like Shiva, off in the woods meditating. So what kind of woman must Parvati have been? Well, a really tremendously powerful one because she raised all four of those children. And not only that, she provided the context in which Ram Prasad had the space to do what he did, which argues that she herself must, be, have, must have been a person of like tremendous spiritual caliber. Because it's very rare, actually, for a saint to be created in a household where if he has a wife, they are not what Shramukshu called Vidya Shakti, a powerful help to that person's spiritual life. So we know very little of Sharvani, but I think what we do know implies that she was perhaps a sadhaka, if not greater, but at least equal to Ram Prasad. And I think she has to be mentioned in the course of talking about Ram Prasad at least. Some, unfortunately, only an honorable mention is possible because we don't have anything more to go off of. But I think in your mind's eye, with Ma Sharada as a model, we can kind of understand what this woman must have been like, the Shakti of Ram Prasad. You know, that's something we really should contemplate. And Ma Sharada herself, is so private, so secret. I know it's 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 a it's a almost like her mystique is par excellence, and so too with Shravan. The next thing is what happened to his friend Maharaja Krishna Chandra when he died. 
Ram Prasad ran to the bedside and sat by the bedside of this king and poured poetry into his left ear as he was passing away. So that the last thought he could have was of Kali. So he spent uh, time at the bedside of his beloved friend, which tells you something a bit about Ram Prasad too, as a human being and how he treated his friends and how he felt about his friends. But these things I think are nice, like Sharvani, his wife, his friend, like just the human aspects of Ram Prasad's life besides his wonderful spiritual journey and his, his, his poetry. Okay, final thing is we'll close with his death. This is a very um, dramatic and I think kind of evocative scene. Diwali, which is coming up. On Sunday, the 12th of um, this particular month, which is always going to be the new moon of the month of Ashwin, is Diwali. Now, Ram Prasad, he was famed for his Diwali celebration because, as you know, Diwali is also Kali Puja. So now, after he had all these visions of Kali, he's, of course, respected and known as a Kali saint. He would, with his own hands, construct the image of Ma Kali to worship on Diwali Day. So he would gather all the materials. He's so obsessed with it. He would gather materials. He would sculpt the image. And then he would throw a big party. Apparently, he would invite all these people and they would all come over to his house and he would have a puja and, and he would like feed everyone. And he was very jovial. The thing is, when people come, he would greet them excitedly and happily. But on one particular Durga puja, sorry, Kali puja, on one particular Diwali, it was not like that. It was 1803. He wasn't his usual jovial self. He wasn't like, like welcoming people in happily. He was sitting just on his asan, his seat of worship. And he was just communing with Ma. And he was like aloof and absorbed. Like he was so into it. And so in the final moments of his life, he did a Kali Puja. And he spent the whole night singing songs to Ma. Like all night long, he was singing songs to Ma. In the morning, after Kali Puja, typically it's an all-night affair. In the morning, what you do is you take either the image or the gatta. The gatta is the pot in which the image of the mother has been invoked. It's so a pot holding water. You'll see it. There's a gatta and you'll be splashed by it when you come to the Kali Puja. That water is Kali herself, and she's worshipped as Kali. So he's he's holding this gatta on his head, as you can see in this scene over here. And he's taking the gatta with him into the water, because what you do is you immerse it. You immerse the image back into the, the Ganga. So he's walking into his beloved Ganga. I mean, Kamal Hati, I maybe didn't mention, was by the Ganga. So he spent his whole life by the Ganga, neck deep in the Ganga for much of it, singing his, his songs. Um, he went into the Ganga with this thing, and allegedly, he just walked in and and drowned himself. I mean, vanished. Uh, Jal Samadhi, they call it. He and the image just went and he was singing the whole time. So the, the coming of this mystic and the passing of this mystic happens like that. He comes, he sings his songs and still singing, he goes out. You know, and, and he sings this particular song, a very beautiful song. He sings, Wait a moment, O death. Tell me, brother, what happens to one after death? My life is spent in vain. Oh, mother, do you remember? These are all different poems. Each one is a line to a poem. And these were the kinds of poems that he was singing on that day. They're obviously kind of tellingly. And then finally, Prasad says, this is the last song, um, the fourth song that he sang on this day. Prasad says, the mind is firm by the power of Dakshina. In brackets, Kali. Oh, mother, my time is out and I have offered my fee. And, and here, Buddha Nandaji says, he became absorbed in mother consciousness. A light suffused his entire being. And in that state of supreme ecstasy, the great soul left his body through the aperture in the crown of the head, the Brahma Randra. And the Bhagirati, the Ganga, flowed on, carrying his last melodious message in the casket of its own murmur to the ocean. 
That's so beautiful. And then at this same time, apparently, towards the south of India, about 30 years later, actually, there's a Sri Muthuswami Dikshitar, a very famous Kali poet. But he was uh, singing songs to Madure Minachi. Madure um, is like a, a place, and Minachi is the goddess, the Kali of that place. So he was a southern Indian poet and a contemporary of Ram Prasad, a junior contemporary of Ram Prasad. So he too had a very similar death. So he was singing a song, and as soon as he uttered the phrase, Pasha Vimochani, which literally means the reliever of bondage. He was freed from the bondage of body and like died then and there. So these two instances in India that we know at least of these two saints who died singing. How did Shri Ramakrishna die? He died crying out in the middle of the night, Kali, Kali, Kali. Thrice he cried and then he left. This is a very beautiful kind of ending, ending stories. So that was Ram Prasad's life in a very brief nutshell. Talked about Sharvani, talked about his children, we talked about his friend, we talked about his sadhana, and most of all, we talked about his longing and his devotion. So, in closing, um, I'm just going to read to you a little bit some poetry. This is Swami Niklanandaji's um, translations of these poems. I'll just read you maybe three or four, just so you can get a sense, a sense of this sentiment. Will such a day ever dawn when uttering the name of the mother, streams of tears will roll from my eyes? When with the lotus of my heart blossomed, will darkness of the mind be dispelled? When will I roll on the ground uttering the name of mother? With my renunciation of the sense of differentiation, all regrets of the mind will be gone. Listen, as the Vedas are true a hundred times, my mother is formless. Ram Prasad declares, my mother pervades everything. Oh, my blind eyes, beholding the mother, darkness. Oh, my blind eyes, behold the mother, darkness, enveloping darkness. Mother, this is the grief that sorely grieves my heart, that even with thee for a mother, and though I am wide awake, there should be robbery in my house. Many and many a time I vow to call on thee, yet when the time for prayer, comes around, I have forgotten. Now all I, now I see it is all thy trick. As thou hast never given, so thou receivest not. Am I to blame for this, O mother? Hadst thou but given, surely then thou hadst received. Out of thine own gifts I should have given to thee. Glory and shame, bitter and sweet, are thine alone. This world is nothing but thy play. Then why, O blissful one, dost thou cause a rift in it? Says Ram Prasad, Thou hast bestowed on me this mind, and with a knowing wink of thine eye, bidden it at the same time to go and enjoy the world. And so I wander here, forlorn through thy creation, blasted as it were by someone's evil glance, taking the bitter for the sweet, taking the unreal for the real. I have surrendered my soul at the fearless feet of the mother. Am I afraid of death anymore? Unto the tuft of my hair on my own head is tied the almighty mantra, Mother Kali's name. My body I have sold in the marketplace of the world and with it have bought Sri Durga's name. Deep within my heart I have planted the name of Kali, the wish-fulfilling tree of heaven. When Yama, king of death, appears, to him I shall open my heart and show it growing there. I have cast out from my from myself six unflagging foes. Ready am I to sail life's sea, crying, To Durga, victory! Jai Ma Durga! And one last poem. 
saying, uh, this time I shall devour thee utterly, Mother Kali, for I was born under an evil star. And one so born becomes, as they say, the eater of his mother. Thou must devour me first, or I myself shall eat thee up. One or the other it must be. I shall besmear my hands with black, Kali, and with black my face. With black I shall besmear the whole of my body. And when death seizes me with black, I shall besmear his face. O oh, mother, I shall eat thee up, but not digest thee. I shall install thee in my heart. And there make the offerings with my mind. Om Jayanti Mangala Kali Bhadra Kali Kapalini Durga Kshama Shiva Dhatri Swaha Swadhana Mostute Om Of course, you can hear the poems, but there's nothing quite like listening to them sung. I won't sing them, I don't know Bengali. But I pray that when you go to Kali Puja, you will all have a chance to hear these great poems put to song as they were initially intended to be heard. And you can hear them in their original Bengali, which is so much nuance that, of course, we can't capture when translating. So I praise uh, Sri Ram Prasad. I pray to Mother Kali that like Ram Prasad, we may also come to be absorbed in her and taste the intoxication of true love for God. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Panamastu Oh ma, jai ma, jai ma, jai Shri Ramakrishna, jai Shri Guru Maharaji ki jai. Good. Thank you all. Thank you so much for coming, online audience. Thank you all for coming. Okay. Do you have any questions? Yeah, the tamasic practice. It's like you're not allowed to offer wine. Instead, you must offer garlic. So basically what it is, it's like all the things that you would offer in the Rajasic practice, you offer metaphors for it. So like instead of offering like wine, you offer, I think, milk. Instead of offering meat, you offer garlic. Instead of offering fish, you offer ginger or something. No, uh, onion or something like that. So they're like kind of metaphors. So like, for instance, if you go to the Kali Mandir, instead of killing a goat, they will cut a cucumber. So these substitutions like that. So the Tamasic, the Pashu Bhava is like a kind of person who they're going to get caught. You know, like if you tell them to do this kind of sadhana involving like sensual things, you know that they don't have the sufficient self-control to actually do that as a spiritual practice. They're just going to become like hedonist. You know, they're, they're going to get caught in the sense that these will become addictive patterns. And um, they're going to want to go to the puja, not for ma, but for the wine, like that. So for that kind of person, which I think is a vast majority of tantrikas, like we say, okay, well, no, 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 just, just do it, do it as prescribed by the shastras, but don't use the wine. You know, don't use the actual meat. Don't use the actual fish, like that. Don't do actual sacrifice. Don't, don't actually have sex. Like you could use metaphors like that. That's... So we can think like, okay, where am I struggling in life? And if there's something that I'm, I have a problem with, like say uh, somebody who just came out of Alcoholics Anonymous, right? They should not under any circumstance be worshipping Kali with wine. <laughs> Obviously not, because that's going to be difficult for them unless they've achieved a certain level of like 
being free from that substance, right? So we should understand, okay, this maybe I don't have the self-control for, so maybe I shouldn't offer this to God. Because if I do, I'm just going to create an excuse to continually indulge in this thing, which I know is causing a problem in my life. You know, that's why. That's the tamasic bhakti. The vira is someone who's like, they, it's very hard because there's a lot of self-delusion also, possibly. But the vira is ideally someone who is able to actually go beyond that sense pleasure but also use that energy of that sense pleasure as we've been discussing in the Vigyana Bhairava. Yeah. The Sattvika person doesn't even have the desire. That's the important thing. Sattvika person, and I think the problem is the hypocrisy. Some people want to be Sattvikas, but they're not honest. They want sex, they pretend they don't. They want to be drunk, they pretend they don't, you know? And then they end up like, really harming themselves because they have shame, guilt, they use violence, repression, like that. But there are some people like Sri Ramakrishna really, really sattvika. Like they just, they just don't have such desires, you know? Sri Ramakrishna, although he was very sattvika, Swami Vekananda, because of how much shakti he needed, he had to be very rajasika. So, um, he also might have practiced a little, Sri Ramakrishna might have practiced a little Veena Bhava also because we don't really know what he, oh, we do know this. I have to tell you, he sat on the lap of the nude young woman, you know that? That whole thing, like, like Bhairavi Brahmani brought a young woman. He says, I don't know from where. In the prime of her youth, a beautiful young woman. And Bhairavi Brahmani, first he said, okay, I made you fish, I'm, I'm going to make you fish curry and you're going to eat it out of the skull bowl. And Sri Ramakrishna was like, Ugh, I don't want to eat fish curry out of a skull bowl. And then his guru was like, no, I'll show you. And then she eats it. And then he was like, okay, okay. And he ate it. That's one thing. That sounds very weird about fish, skull bowl, right? Another thing was, he was supposed to eat the flesh of a corpse. So Bhairavi Brahmani gave it to him and he was like, he didn't want to eat it. But Bhairavi like ate it. And he see? And so he ate it. That's very Veera Baba. And the final trial, I guess, in his sadhana was um, he was supposed to do japa on the lap of this woman after worshipping her as the divine goddess. So he worshipped her first. He offered flies. He worshipped her as a murti. And then when it was time to sit on his lap, he got a bit scared because he was afraid that he was going to be lost in the power of sensuality and thereby forget the Divine Mother. Because that can happen, right? When we engage in like our own self-gratification, we forget all about God, mostly. The, the, the task here is to remember God even in the midst of this tremendous arousal, right? This like, this, this. So he sits on the woman, takes his japa mala, I think, and starts to do japa and immediately goes into samadhi. He's like, plunge samadhi. And when he comes out, Bhairavi Brahmani said, you did very well, my child. Many people, when they go on the lap of the woman in this particular ritual, they just do japa really quickly and jump off because they're like shy. Or maybe they like forget the japa and they enter into a sexual union with her or something. Like they get, they get overwhelmed by the energy of that sensation. But a true sadhaka doesn't shy away from the energy. Is not afraid of arousal, but at the same time, they know how to take that arousal up the spine, transcend the lower chakras, establish themselves in higher chakras, and have spiritual experiences, which are very difficult to have if the lower chakras are active. You know, like that, that, that kind of understanding. So that life-affirming nature, it's hard to sell because on one hand, if you're too life-affirming, you become the pashu, but if you're too life-negating, you also do harm to yourself. It's like this perfect balance of like a confident person who has no hang-ups and problems with life, who is also a sincere, serious, spiritualized aspirant. Like that. So, good. Rich is asking, yes, Rich, you have a question? Somebody asked in the chat. Um, oh, yes, okay. Yes, Rich. So, the, for the last month, I've been listening and... Swami Nikamananda and um, everyone from this lineage continues to worship Ma, their deva, 
and to have a connection with them through bhakti. Uh, and a couple of lectures ago, we were talking about if you're a yani, you can get lost in being heady. If you're doing acts, I'm such a great person. Bhakti, there's always devotion to it. I was listening to another uh, tantra practitioner, and he was saying that bhakti can actually be one of the hardest ones because the higher levels, you have to let go of the God. You finally realize you are of God. So I just was wondering from this lineage, what would that be, the perspective? Yeah, see, tantric bhakti is very special because in the very beginning, you recognize that the God that you're worshipping is your very own self. Especially in tantra, I mean, obviously not all tantra is non-dual, but this particular lineage is non-dual tantra. So when you worship God, you say, I am that God, but this is important. The God that you are is the formless Shiva. Actually, it's very easy to make this mistake. You are pure consciousness because that reality, Brahman, is what you are. However, that pure consciousness is inseparable from its Shakti. That Shakti is literally God, like literally, like the God that creates, preserves, and destroys. Like, like not metaphorically, literally God. So you have two things, self and God. But God, the Saguna Brahman, the dynamic aspect, is never different from self. But because what are you going to do? Like, how are you going to meditate on the self? The, the self is the one meditating. So how can you meditate on the self? What, meditate on Om? Good luck with that. Meditate on an ocean? Try. It's very difficult to actually have a genuine spiritual practice meditating on the formless because the heart doesn't respond to the formless. The heart responds to form, to a personality. So Makali, when we worship her, that bhakti, from the very beginning, we understand that what we are worshiping is the energy of the self, which we ourselves are. And that energy, the, the goal of worshipping Makali is eventually to recognize the unity of Kali and Shiva and then established in this Nirguna and Saguna aspect, um, there's no risk of like having to you know become too attached to God or something like that. You know, uh, The only risk of Bhakti, I would say, is sentimentality and fanaticism. My God alone is true. Your God is wrong. See, if I love Kali so much, I don't want to see Krishna's face. If I love Krishna so much, I don't want to see Kali's face. If I love Jesus so much, then everyone else is wrong. Everyone sucks. You have to love my Jesus. Imagine if you got married to someone, you were like, okay, everyone has to love my wife and my wife alone. That'd be kind of weird, but that's how a lot of my religious people are, right? They like really feel that like everyone must worship the way they worship or everyone must accept their ideal. That's the risk of bhakti. So that's called bhakti without jnana. That bhakti that just is so sentimental that it doesn't understand that there's one reality. Like people like, oh, is it Durga? Or is it Kali? Or is it Lakshmi? Or is it Saraswati? No, 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 no. Apply some Jnana. There's only one mother. There's only one energy of consciousness and it's represented as all of this. You don't get confused. Or, oh, there's this religion. There's that religion. No, no, no. Apply some Jnana. There's only one reality and all different religions are various ways of representing it. So as long as you know that, you're safe. But if you forget that, you'll become a bit fanatic and kind of like, that's the problem. Bhakti can give you a lot of uh, emotionalism. Also, it makes people very gullible and susceptible to cults, right? We find that also. <laughs> Bhakti can have that effect also. Because, you know, the thing of jnana is like more sobering. You're always invited to reason. But whenever there's powerful emotion, there's almost always someone who's willing to take advantage of those emotions to manipulate people into either taking their money or like whatever, you know? So... The danger of bhakti is you kind of lose yourself in it, you be, and that's what you're supposed to do, actually. But you could easily, if you're not careful, give in to the sentimentality, get taken advantage of, etc., become fanatic like that. That's the only risk I would find with bhakti. But, you know, spiritual life is generally risky. <laughs> but not as risky as being in the world, so don't worry. <laughs> yes. Thank you. All right, you guys.
Thank you so much. Thank you all for coming. Let's call it an evening. And I pray that you all tune in for the live stream on Sunday um, and hear everyone sing. It was a true joy. Thank you for coming and like nerding out about Ram Prasad with me, my favorite book in the whole world next to the gospel. I'm glad we got to talk about it. So thank you. Thank you all so much. I hope you're inspired. Um, I hope that was as good for you as it was for me. Okay, good night. Om Shanti 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 Hare Om Tatsat Shri Parameshwari Shri Ram Krishna Arpanam Astu